Let the fireworks begin. Good morning, Steve Dales, Pet World on WGN. I imagine, I don't know, we'll see, when I talk to Deborah Hamilton, who's an attorney, two attorneys in one program, we'll see if I survive, for starters. But when I talk to her about pet store sales, I come from one place, she comes from a completely different place. From the Animal Policy Group, one of my favorite people to interview, even though he doesn't admit that I'm right, uh, because we often disagree, but we even more often agree. And what we always agree upon, Mark Cushing, is that we want the best for the profession of veterinary medicine, which then will be the best for pet parents and for pets as well. We agree with that. 100%. Yeah. And, and one of the topics, Steve, that, that I know is on your mind, and mine has been the shortage of veterinary professionals and the impact that has on practices, burnout, stress, all that, on pet owners, but ultimately on pets themselves. Yep. And uh, my wife chairs anatomy at Mayo Clinic. Uh, she med does school. what? I'm she sorry? chairs anatomy at Mayo Clinic's med school. I never school. knew that. So she's uh, so I see human medicine, mm-hmm. and I study that a lot. And for sixty years now, for three generations, we've had nurse practitioners, physician assistants, alongside DOs and MDs. Uh, and many communities in America would have no health care without the med level protect- practitioners. Veterinary medicine doesn't have anything called a med level. Let me tell you why it's a good idea. And originally, the doctors fought it and nurses said, oh, my God, if we bring in PAs, our salaries will go down. All they've done is grow their salaries because the PAs have understood better than doctors what nurses can do. And so two programs now, Lincoln Memorial and soon-to-be Colorado State, are developing a mid-level practitioner for veterinary medicine. And here's a key difference. You, number one, have to do what, what you talk a lot about, and I couldn't support more strongly, Use your vet techs or your nurses to the top of their credential and their board exam. Extremely important. But their two-year training is significantly different than what you get with a PA, which is a medical training. Remember this about PAs in the human space. It's med school shrunk to three years without a residency. And it was done for wartime situations. We've got to get doctors into the field. We can't get them fast enough. Mm -hmm. We'll make it easier. That's what the veterinary PA does. They take veterinary anatomy, they take physiology, they take pharmacology, they actually know the medical side. They become a resource to work up a case with a vet tech, doing things a vet well, tech can't do. Well, the technicians study all those things, not they pharmacology they, as no, much. They don't. But no, they don't. Yeah, they do. Steve, they, let me tell you, I work with 10 different vet schools. Technicians don't take veterinary anatomy. They don't take anything like veterinary physiology or pharmacology. They don't. They don't have time in a two-year curriculum. It's, it's very skill and task focused, okay, and importantly so. And mm-hmm. I'm not degrading it. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. This, what you need is this mid-level that could take – let's take an appointment. You come into my clinic. I'm the, I'm the veterinary PA. You spend 15 minutes with me. I work up the case. The doctor comes in, and I say, here's what I see, doctor. Here's what the diagnostics tell us. I think this is the treatment plan. Here's the prescription. The doctor looks at it, takes two or three minutes, and goes, I agree, signs off. It's on the doctor. The doctor's supervising it. And the doctor now can see eight patients an hour, not one or two. That's the trick. And that's the key. And the pay scale for the vet uh, PA will be about double what it is for a vet tech who were woefully underpaid. So we need to use them better and pay vet techs more. I couldn't agree more, but there's a level of expertise in between them and a doctor that we need to bridge 
for the reason you talk about so eloquently, which is we have so many more pets today, and millennial and Gen Z pet owners want a lot more. Indeed, that's true. And yeah. we can go into more detail about that, but we won't right now. Instead, yeah. I want to ask you about, all right, what you just said, yeah. because there are more pets than ever before. For a variety of reasons, fewer veterinary professionals than ever before, not enough even coming into the profession. So one thing we need to do is simply have more veterinary schools, yes. and, and you're working on that. I am, Stephen. I've been lucky enough to, to, to start two new schools, um, <clears throat> and one of them, LMU, is, believe it or not, in uh, an unknown part of eastern Tennessee, is now the largest vet school in America. Really? Uh-huh. Class, class size of Which two, one? Which Lincoln one? Memorial. Really? The largest. The largest. 225 student class size compared to 164 is the largest of any other school. Do we need to grow the class sizes for all the schools? Yes. And, and many schools are doing that. But we, in my judgment, we need to start between five and ten new schools. I can't say on the air right now which, but I'm in the process of starting between five and seven new schools. But those We're, are those are longer-term solutions. Well, so, they're, go ahead. They're, but they're shorter than one case. You'll be happy to hear. In, at the University of Arizona, it's a three-year program, not four-year. Mm-hmm. It's the same nine semesters. We're not cutting anything short, but you're in the workforce a whole year earlier. That's a big deal. It is. It's number one. And the other thing is all these new programs have the clinical year as a distributive. You're in a practice for four weeks. You go to another practice. You go to a shelter. You spend 11 months, maybe 15 months. You're not just learning so you're ready to go when you graduate. You're actually doing work in those clinics you're not watching for a month. And Lincoln Memorial School that nobody had heard of, first graduating class 2018, every year since then has had the highest starting salaries of any vet school in America. And you think, how's that possible? A brand new school. You know why? Those students, those rotations, they're like auditions for med students who try to get into residencies. Mm-hmm. After two weeks, the practices say, hey, Steve, would you think about living in Louisville? Because you're really good. We're watching what you do. The staff likes you. You know what you're doing. So, so the dynamics of you know, being in a teaching hospital away from the practices that are limited because space is limited, those distributed rotations are almost unlimited in number that are available. So you're going to see the new schools putting students into practices, Steve, very quickly and efficiently. So what we didn't talk about is what the problem is in the first place and why it's there. Uh, so fewer veterinary professionals, mm-hmm. uh, not only veterinarians, technicians and nurses as well, more pet parents than ever before. That's the kind of one-sentence version of it. Describe, though, how we got here. Yeah, What happened was pets are at a level of importance today that wasn't imagined even 20 years Which ago. Which you explain well in a book that I know yeah. you know about. Yeah, Pet Nation. But, but you, Pet you, Nation, you, which you authored. And you ever, all the time that you've been in the pet world you know, as, as a great voice of radio, you've talked about that. So we didn't value pets. We woke up in the 90s, 2000s, it began to percolate, and then it just took off, mainly because millennials grew up with pets as kids of baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And they all wanted pets. Not to replace kids, they just wanted to make sure they had pets. And that dynamic, from 79 to 2014, 
one vet school opened in 35 years. We just didn't see this thing coming. And you know what? Nobody could have. So no one needs to be punished or, you know, in prison because we didn't predict it. But guess what? <laughs> I hope not. But that's what happened. And so all of a sudden, and then we had a model, big land grants in your part of the world, the Big Ten programs, incredibly expensive, you know, massive, 100, 200, 300-acre complexes. And it just didn't look like it was necessary or affordable. And today legislatures aren't looking for things to spend that kind of money on. What I've done is start schools that cost like ridiculously less because you didn't have to do it quite that way. And so what we have to do is hurry up. It'll take two, three, four years for some of these to start, but, but you're going to see more schools on the horizon, and, and you have to do that, number one. Okay, so what we didn't describe is why veterinarians have also left the profession and technicians and nurses as well. Yeah, and that's uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's been an undervalued profession, and compared to dentistry, compared to human medicine, you took the same first two or three-year courses in college. Your med school friends went off, and you know they had to go to residencies, and it took them a lot longer. But when they finally got out to the workforce, they were making two, three, four, five times what a veterinarian made. Problem number one. So you had to love animals. Um, and number two... It was harder to get in. It still is because there's fewer seats. So you were told early on, hey, Steve, you ought to think about dentistry or medicine because you aren't going to get into Illinois vet school. You know, they only take this many students, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, it's not a big enough number. So that dynamic is changing. And there was a fear on the profession side, which seems weird now to you and me, that, oh, my God, new vets means I'm out of a job. I, I'm not going to have enough clients. They're going to take my clients. Well, good Lord, <laughs> the demand right now, I mean, and for it's the crazy. Un- yeah. unknown future says, don't worry about that. You'll have plenty of business. And there's more to it than that, which we'll talk about. And we will also talk about what's called telemedicine or telehealth. And we will do that when we come back on WGN. Mark Cushing is from the Animal Policy Group. And you're involved with everything, it seems, in veterinary <laughs> medicine. Uh, you've been doing this for a very long time, haven't you? I got a phone call in t- 2005, so 18 years ago, from Scott Campbell, who founded Banfield, one of the bigger yeah. practices in the country, to help solve a coalition's issue with microchipping. And I was a lobbyist in a big law firm in D.C., and they said, do you think you can help? And I said, maybe. And they called him back about three days later and said, I got an idea. I had a solution. It was successful. I figured that was it. I enjoyed it. It was well-paid. Um, and the phone started ringing saying, hey, could you do this? Could you do that? And this industry that I'd never thought about. It's your life now. So now it's, it's been a good 16, 17-year run. Enjoy the heck out of it. And it's all changed so much. And I've had the fortune, Steve, of clients that wanted to change and look at things differently. So I've been given the chance to kind of push the envelope, not always welcomed, but usually with a smile on my face so people put up with it. But it's been a good run, so it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's picking up steam, it seems like, every year. And the profession has changed so much. The world has changed so much as far as pet parenting. Yeah. We don't say pet ownership so much anymore, right? right? Uh, uh, so many things have changed. More pets by far in America today than ever before. And what we were talking about uh, before the break, fewer veterinarians and veterinary professionals, including nurses and technicians. You described some of those reasons. Uh, another is simply burnout, compassion fatigue. Yeah. And uh, we don't have time to talk about it in detail, but people would be surprised to learn how common yeah. suicide is in veterinary medicine, of all things. Yeah, it's, you know, there's two 
distinctions that veterinary medicine is not proud of and, and shouldn't be, uh, and I don't say it with a, uh, a glibness. Number one, highest suicide rate of, of a, any professional in America, and secondly, the widest profession. So it's been the least diverse, and, and, and the profession has not paid attention. It is now, but but you're always playing catch up on both fronts. Yeah, and and I think the uh, demand of a millennial Gen Z pet owning group, which you know you know I've talked about, it, is the biggest group 50% of all pets now owned by millennials and, and growing and growing and they want more and they want more types of services well they are they really are their fur babies and, and you know what they want which uh, Carrie O'Hara a researcher showed me is it uh, I was so impressed by this she said Mark they want adv- they'll pay for at it Purdue you know Carrie O'Hara you're thinking of Maggie O'Hara you're right who's now at University of Arizona correct but I work with both schools so I okay. have to stay out of that one but uh, <laughs> But Kerry O'Hara is a Ph.D. researcher that works with my animal policy group and was at uh, Nationwide Pets. Mm-hmm. But she said the thing about millennials that people don't appreciate is they'll pay for this, but they want advice. Tell me how to raise my pet. Well, guess what? A lot of people go to vet school because they don't want to talk to people. They like animals. They're not natural talkers. As you know, they tend to show up as introverts on the Myers-Briggs personality profile. So you've got millennials wanting more often and more in-depth treatments, and they'll pay for it. And there's fewer and fewer vets per pet, per client. So veterinarians, they get home at 7 or 8 at night. They don't take lunch. They're burnt out. Yeah. And and the pay's better now, and that's finally being addressed. And, and good news, bad news, but mainly good news. Uh, so people can afford to, and people were selling their practices, as you know, and particularly in Chicagoland's a great example, for great multiples and retiring early. So boomers are leaving. They're retiring. We're not replacing them at a, at a fast enough clip. All those dynamics have created that burnout factor. And, uh, and, and the profession y- is greatly women, too. So, yes. so you go into the profession, you're a woman, but you begin to have a family. Yep. Then you want to not go into work as much. But there is a work-at-home way to do things Let's, that human medicine is doing great 100%. at. 100%. In fact, right now, if you advertise for a telemedicine nurse or technician or a telemedicine doctor, you have all the applicants you could ever want. If you advertise for a doctor or technician in your clinic, good luck. It's been said right now that the average working vet in a clinic has 20 offers in their inbox. Yeah. Unsolicited offers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the, the point is human medicine has proven one thing. Telemedicine works. It makes sense. It hasn't threatened. It hasn't caused injury. And let me share a fact with you. Province of Ontario, where Toronto is, 15 million people, they've had full-fledged telemedicine for pets for five years. Not one report, not one, of any harm to any pet in that province. All the U.S. states, 19, that uh, allowed telemedicine during COVID so you didn't go into the clinic and have social distancing issues, right? Not a single state had one report of any injury to a pet. So what's the problem? So here's the problem veterinarians, mainly old-line veterinarians, I I deal with it all the time, establishment veterinarians, fear competition. They think, oh, my God, Steve Dales and Mark Cushing are going to create a telemedicine thing and take all my clients. But there are telemedicine things happening, whether they like it or not. And they're working. 
Yeah. And, and they work in human medicine. And, and, guess and, and this is what people want. This is what, in particular, those millennial pet parents that you talk about and Generation Z, right. this is how they prefer to communicate anyway. But the secret is, not so much of a secret, great-grandma learned to communicate this way during the pandemic. Yeah. So now she's even on Zoom calls, or he is on Zoom calls. It, it's not a big deal. It's what, it's what clients want, and it right. seems that everyone would benefit because right now you can't get in steve you know who would benefit the most veterinarians let, let me tell you what they found out in ontario sure telemedicine in five years has increased traffic to clinics why because you call me you're happy that i could take your call i give you some help i say you know what steve i think your cat needs to see somebody you go into this clinic over here you appreciate that recommendation. You don't, you're not upset about going to the clinic. You don't think it's been a scam. You go there, you get good service, you get to know the doctors, you begin to become a regular patient. But in the meantime, you get some guidance that helps the pet. 100%. And, and better to get that guidance by a professional, because yeah. we are only both talking about telemedicine companies that have veterinary, veterinarians or technicians right. on the other end of the phone, right. not just some plumber. Or, or you or me. Or, yeah, that, that's right. That's <laughs> a lawyer right. and a radio guy. Yeah, in. well, I'm yeah. a behavior consultant, actually. <laughs> oh, okay. But, there but, you but, go. So I could do that. Right. But, but we're talking about professionals, yeah. right? Uh, better to get that advice than – because people are desperate. They don't know where to go. But there are places right. to turn. Dr. Google, the guy at the dog park, the lady who lives downstairs with six cats. She must know about cats. She has six cats. Here's the good news, but let's not have it take as long as it sounds like. Consumers ultimately always get what they want. Millennials will get convenient care for their pets. Is it high quality? Not enough if you don't open door of telemedicine. But you know what? This year, stay tuned. You're going to see states begin to turn that direction and say, what are we talking about? It works for human medicine. Let's, Let's give pets a chance. I hope, because veterinary client-patient relations, have I got that yeah, right? PCPR. Right. Yeah. Uh, has been the sticking point. Yeah. And organized medicine, veterinary medicine, right. has said, no, unless you have that relationship, you can't do anything. So I hope you're right about that, yeah. Mark, because everyone will benefit. We are out of time, but it is always, and I do mean always, stimulating to talk to Mark Cushing. All Thank right. you. Stay tuned. Have you heard of the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention? It was begun several years ago by Dr. Ernie Ward, and I'm proud to say I am now on their board of directors. I mean, when he asked me to, to join their board, I looked at him and I said, does that mean I have to lose 30 pounds by next week? He said, no, you don't. Uh, this really is, in all seriousness, a truly important organization because so many of our dogs and cats are overweight or obese. Just how many? Well, there's a new report out, and he will report on his new report next week, right here on Steve Dale's Pet World, Dr. Ernie Ward. I've known Deborah Hamilton for a long time. Deborah Hamilton is an attorney with Hamilton Law Mediation. So, first of all, tell me what that is, Deborah, and your connection to the dog world. Well, Hamilton Law Mediation represents people to resolve conflicts over animals without having to go to litigation because the issues about animals gets lost in litigation where people go and one party has to win and the other party has to lose, uh, and the animal really isn't considered. So I've created the first in the country and probably in the world mediation practice solely focused on conflicts between people over animals. Okay. Um, And I'm in this world because... 
I have always loved animals, always been um, reached out to by people who have conflicts over animals with their neighbors, their husbands, their breeders, anything that happens within the animal realm, people just naturally come to me. Um, and I also uh, breed and show Irish setters. Which are gorgeous. But don't you need two parties to come to the table if there's going to be mediation? Well, absolutely. And it's a voluntary process, which makes it a little more difficult than litigation where you're forced to come to the table. However, if you really want to do what's best for the animal, coming to the table and throwing out all the ideas everyone has for a solution often creates that perception perspective education that you need to know that, well, Steve holds one opinion, I think, and I hold another opinion, I think. And then when I hear what Steve has to say with the neutral in the room, I go, oh, I didn't know he thought that, or oh, I didn't know he'd be willing to do that. And it creates that pathway to prepave for a better solution for the animal. Okay, so what started this was I posted something in social media that, uh, yeah, the French Bulldog is now the most popular dog in America, but, you know, they, they do have some medical problems. There's no question about that. But there's also no question that better bred French Bulldogs, it's true with any breed, I believe, are going to likely be better off than those that may be from puppy mills, very likely from puppy mills if they're sold at a pet store. In fact, that might not even be a pedigree French bulldog. The testing that is required now or suggested uh, and that responsible breeders do having to do with medical issues, puppy mills certainly aren't going to do that. And pet stores have no idea what you're talking about if even you bring it up. And they have no idea where the dogs came from. And I said all that in this post. And I said, the American Kennel Club doesn't much care because they're supporting by saying, all right, they're fighting these laws where I support no dogs, no cats could be sold at pet stores because they are from large breeding facilities, most often puppy mills. And the American Kennel Club is, interestingly, fighting, I mean, really fighting these, going to court in some cases, hiring lobbyists to prevent these laws from being laws. And right now, we have, I think it's, if I'm counting right, six states, many counties, over 400 municipalities that have said no dogs, no cats can be sold, in some cases no rabbits, at pet stores. And the whole notion is, all right, the, the, what we've wanted to do for years, which was to educate people so they just don't buy at a pet store, that, that's not working. So let's do something to prevent the puppy mill pipeline from entering our community. And uh, that's all I said. And you said I was being too tough on the AKC or some such thing. So I'm curious as to what your perspective is, Deborah. Well, I really appreciate the, the information that you shared with the listeners because it is really a difficult situation we're in. However, the AKC is just the registry. It isn't really empowered with the ability to shut people down. If they're not keeping their paperwork up, absolutely, they can take that ability away. But they can't really go and shut someone down unless someone complains to them. And then they do a review and they go out and look at the um, facility. And then they can have the ability to take away their ability to register dogs and report them to the local 
um, animal care and control and well, have the animal care and control come in and shut them down. Okay, so he doesn't have that ability. And the second part that I just yeah. want to get in before you respond is that the AKC sees any legislation like this as being used against those wonderful um, um, preservationist breeders who do do the testing because people don't know the difference. And so they'll come in and see a wonderful breeder who has spent years with these breeds, um, and the manner in which she may kennel her dogs will be an enigma to someone, and they'll shut them down. So it's that education really is the most important piece rather than shutting things or stopping things without educating. Education is the most important piece. Well, I don't doubt the part about education, but it's been decades and decades and decades and decades, and pet stores are still in some places, except now where they've been banned, a thriving business. The AKC is not spending money on you, those who breed specific breeds that we'll call hobby breeders. They're not spending the money on you. They are spending a ton of money. I have no idea how much. But I do know lobbyists are not inexpensive. Going to court, why would they go to court if if a state says no dogs or cats can be sold at this pet store or any pet store in our state? Why would they go to court to fight that even after it's been passed as law? And why would they fight so hard for it not to be passed as a law in the first place, that has nothing to do with hobby breeders. Would a hobby breeder, would you ever, ever, ever sell to a pet store where the person walks into that pet store and the person at the store has one goal in mind, that's to make a sale. And if you say, if it's, uh, I, I don't know all of the medical issues involving uh, your breed, Irish setters, uh, but if if I say, oh, was this dog OFA, Orthopedic Foundation for Animals? Was it tested for hip issues? The, the, are you kidding? A person at a pet store would have any idea of what that means. And even if they did, do you think possibly there would be paperwork to indicate the case one way or the other? Because these dogs are sold through multiple brokers, uh, by the way, on purpose, because... They don't want anyone to follow this puppy mill pipeline where the animals really came from. The idea is so they don't figure it out, actually. So I don't quite understand still, despite what you said, how the American Kennel Club is in any defense of of doing this. And I'm curious. I still don't understand why you would be defending them. I like a lot of the things the AKC does, the American Kennel Club Canine Health Foundation. They have discovered so many things through funding studies that we now know about dogs, not only pedigree or purebred dogs, but all dogs. But that has nothing to do with this issue, which is a very important issue. And if it was just about education, those stores wouldn't have any sales, but they do. And we are predisposed, hardwired almost, to say, oh, they're beautiful little puppies. And then we go ahead and we buy those beautiful little puppies, or we feel badly for them because they're at pet stores, and there's all sorts of data to indicate that dogs sold to pet stores are more likely, far more likely, to have medical and or behavioral issues. So a a lot packed in there, too. I will say that it is almost impossible for preservationist breeders to meet the needs of people who want a purebred dog. Uh, People are not, because of the pushback, on breeding dogs, people are not necessarily staying in the hobby breeding 
uh, milieu because it just is so difficult because we're painted with the same brush as um, puppy mills. And quite frankly, the there are several um, puppy mills uh, that are not necessarily the ones we conjure up in our minds that they're in the back of the woods. Um, in crates where dogs are stacked one on top of each other, pooping and peeing on each other. They've come a long way because regulations have been passed by legislatures on how to run a, a hobby kennel or a kennel that is uh, up to snuff. The AKC doesn't mind that. It just really does mind when there are these rules and regulations that will impact the ability of people to actually ever breed dogs, um, to have dogs in their neighborhood, to um, make sure. Because you don't see, when you, when you talk this way, which I appreciate, you don't see how that impacts the hobby breeder. So we're putting the people who we'd like to buy dogs from, who do do the health testing, out of business when we should be working with the people who heat their home, feed their family by raising some purebred dogs or now the designer dogs, which are much more prolific than um, the purebred dogs. And, you know, they're not doing any health testing either. And it becomes a question of what the consumer really wants, what they're willing to put up with, um, and the animals, again, this is why I do the practice I do because people get into this argument back and forth and we're forgetting about what exactly um, is happening to the animals. So if we, you know, legislate to the nth degree and shut down puppy mills, well, then they'll just go on the Internet and then nobody will see anything. There'll be nobody checking. There'll be okay. no one recognizing right. the rules and regulations that um, pet stores must follow. All right, Rescues a lot there. don't have those rules and regulations. You know this, Steve. Yeah. Rescues um, don't have these rules and regulations that they have to follow. So they sometimes are even worse than any pet store you'd ever go to, and no le- much less, but because they're labeled a rescue instead of um, a pet store, it really gets to be, there's a lot of gray area in there that we really should do a little more research on. And just before I let you go, you um, speak up, I just want to add that the consumer also doesn't want to necessarily deal with me. We don't have the answers, but they're a wonderful dog and need a home just as much as a They sure dog do, and they're a lot less money, but a lot there to respond to. I can't do that, though, until we take a break, which we'll do right now, then come back with Deborah Hamilton of Hamilton Law Mediation. We're not mediating very well here, I don't think. We'll be right back. We're talking with Deborah Hamilton of Hamilton Law Mediation. Uh, Deborah, a lot there to reply to, but what I still don't understand, the American Kennel Club is supposed to, by their own rules and regulations, be spending money on you, defending you. All of that money which goes to pet stores... Really, defending pet stores that are selling either large commercial facility dogs. By the way, we can't visit those commercial facilities. And even in their guidebook, the American Kennel Club says, uh, before you make a purchase, visit the facility. So they contradict themselves because there's no way, no how you could visit where those animals at pet stores are sold from. Oftentimes, though, they're not large commercial facilities that remain a mystery. They truly are puppy mills. And one assertion you make which 
the American Kennel Club has made. Well, if, if, we, if we allow this to happen and prevent dogs from being sold to pet stores, then they'll just be sold online anyway. First of all, that doesn't necessarily seem to be true. So the states that have said we ban sales, no more sales of dogs and cats at pet stores have seen no more or no less, as far as they can tell, sales online. What they've seen are more adoptions, actually. Now, a couple of things. If I sell you, I don't know, a screwdriver, and I'm really selling you a hammer, well, you probably know the difference, but if you're like me and barely know how to use a screwdriver, maybe you don't. Isn't selling one thing that is different than is what is really being sold, isn't that consumer fraud? Well, I'm not really sure what the hammer and screwdriver have to do with the dog. If you're thinking that, well, if I'm buying a, an, um, a beagle and I buy a beagle from a preservationist breeder who does all the health testing versus... Um, a beagle who might come from what you're considering a commercial breeder, large-scale breeder, small-scale puppy mill breeder, um, are they the same dogs? Um, they are not the same dogs. And it's not, if it's fraud, if they have AKC papers uh, and the mother had AKC they do. papers. They do. Uh, it's, it's interesting, even in the world of dog shows, we can have dogs with AKC papers who don't look at all like their but, parents in, in, the, in the fact that they don't have good fronts, they might have a bad bite. Their that, is that is different. Off, like that. That's, that's at a fancy dog show event, not someone paying thousands of dollars for what is supposed to be a beagle that turns out when you do the genetic test not to be a pedigreed beagle and in fact when you get a veterinarian well, then that has to be reported to the akc because then they'll do a dna test they don't care and they'll revoke you their say, ability no, no it's not true no, they they no. will revoke their ability to register their dogs if no someone, because we do it i don't the care the person who buys a dog at a pet store doesn't really care about akc papers they're buying a dog at a pet store they're spending so much money on that dog well, then you do answered they care? your own question steve they no, don't I didn't. care about akc papers. but they care about what they bought and buying something under the pretense that it's one thing, and then you're buying another, that's illegal. And pet stores do that every single day. And they don't even know what they're selling. They sell what they are told they are selling by a broker who goes through another broker and another broker. And also, if everything is on the up and up, which it's not, there's zero transparency. If there's, why, why is it so secretive? I want to know. I don't know that it's secretive. Yeah, I don't know is. what you mean by secretive, oh, and is. I'm not trying to if be I, if I go, If it's, I go to a pet store and say, where is that dog from, they can't tell me even if they want to. Well, their papers do say, so I don't know if you've no, gone they to don't. a pet store and no, asked. No. Well, I have. I've gone to a pet store and asked because I wanted to know where an Irish setter came from. And I asked to see the papers. And it was before cell phones, so I had to write down the name. Um, and it was a broker who I then contacted to see where I got the dog from. And at the time, he said, this is the dog's pedigree. And if you go back to the dog's pedigree, they have the dog's pedigree. I've yet to um, hear from any of my clients calling me and saying, ABC Pet Store sold me a dog. They said it was a beagle. And then when we did DNA testing, it was a Lhasa Apsa. 
um, and uh, I want to sue them for fraud. Well, then we would sue them for fraud. I wouldn't because I don't litigate anymore, but I would tell them to go to well, the DA's it, office but it and happens, have it enforced because but it that's happens, what you can do. It happens all the time, but here's what's but happened. it's not AKC's job, Steve. So that's, I think, where we have the disconnect. But, but and I why am, is AKC... I am listening actively and hearing everything you're saying, which is what mediation is. But you're not hearing... hearing this, which I've got to say next. The show's over, or at least this part of it is. I'm so sorry. We are out of time. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. And even a mediator, I don't think, can fix this. I'm out of time. Deborah, thank you so much for having this discussion with me. And I'm sure that we'll have it again online, if not in person. Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Law Mediation. Thanks, Deborah. Thanks, Steve. Imagine seeing that red and blue flashing light in your rearview mirror. Many of you have had that experience, right? What do you do? You pull over. But then do you do this? Do you quickly switch places with the passenger? So at least you're not to blame. In this instance, the passenger was a canine. When the officer approached the vehicle, he noted that a dog, a dog is in the driver's seat. When the passenger said, officer, it's not my fault, the dog was driving. (laughs) The officer said, I don't think so. According to law enforcement, it was discovered that this driver was in fact wanted on two active warrants for his arrest out of Pueblo, Colorado. He was also driving drunk and perhaps on drugs and going over 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. However, there's good news. The dog does not face any charges and was given to an acquaintance of the driver, at least for now. We're back next week, bright and early on WGN.